The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Today we return to this really just an amazing, amazing portion of Scripture because here we are faced with the blunt reality of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Last week I told you this is a very difficult passage of Scripture to preach, and we did begin the message last week. As Christians, we spend more time defending the deity of Christ than we do his humanity, and that's because... His deity is one of the premier doctrines that is attacked by almost all of the cults, whether it's Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or Christian scientists or many of the others. The deity of Christ is one of those doctrines that's a premier doctrine. It's one that Satan wants to pervert. And so you find lots of people, lots of religions that actually pervert the deity of Christ and uh, do not believe in his nature as Jehovah God. Now, we don't have to deal so much with the humanity of Christ, though, but it is just as necessary for us to argue that Christ was a man as much as he was God, that there is both humanity and deity that is combined in one person. In early church history, there was a faction that was called Gnosticism that could not square his humanity with his deity, And so they developed a doctrine that said that Jesus was not both man and God. And this is because in Greek thought, the flesh was considered to be inherently evil. And I'm talking about this flesh, your skin and your bones. They believe that that was inherently evil. And so it is impossible that God should become man. And so they believe that what God did with Jesus was that God actually came upon a man that was named Jesus, and he inhabited the body, and he used that body. And then when he was through with it, the Spirit left the body, and that's when Jesus was crucified on the cross. In other words, they were saying that there was no essential union of his humanity with humanity with deity, because that's an impossible thing. Well, those kinds of doctrines are actually actually deal-breakers because they destroy the doctrine of salvation because in order for Christ to atone for our sins, he had to become a man in order to endure the temptations of the flesh and to overcome them and to earn righteousness that could be given to us for our justification. And so the denial that Christ was fully human and that he was actually God in the flesh has very serious ramifications for the atonement. Without Christ being the full satisfaction to God for the sins of man, paying the penalty of our sins, none of us could be saved. Now, in this text, we never see the humanity of Christ more clearly than when he stepped into the garden and there was an oppressive weight upon him that was accentuated by the weakness of human flesh. Now, let's read about it here in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Let's stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 26, verse number 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter 
and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And you need to mark that well, that phrase there, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word and uh, what a story that we have in front of us. Um, Too deep for us to really get to the bottom of it. Help us, Lord, in our limited understanding to learn from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In this passage, Jesus was just moments away from the betrayal by Judas. Just hours now is he away from the cross. And I think that this part of Matthew turns out to be one of the most important parts of the Scriptures, one of the most important texts that we find in all of the Bible. There are eight chapters in Matthew that is more than one-fourth of this book that deal with the last week of Jesus' life. There are 20 other chapters that are used to deal with 33 years of his life. Now this one week in his life and this incident that happens here in the garden will determine, it's so important because it determines if God's redemptive plan will succeed or will it fail. What Christ determines to do here in the garden is the most profound thinking Some of the greatest, or it is, the greatest decision that's ever made because it determines the future of mankind. It determines whether God is going to have a redeemed people. It determines whether there is going to be a literal kingdom that comes to this earth and will heaven be populated with people. And that's really the weight that was on Jesus' mind as he went into the garden. Not only is it his life that's on the line, but it's also the lives of everyone who would be the eternal lives of everyone that's a believer in him. And that makes the name of the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, so descriptive to us because the name means olive press. And it was a garden where it was full of olive trees and there was an olive press there where olives were put under great pressure to squeeze out the oil. And that name is surely descriptive to us because of the intense pressure that Jesus was under as he weighed these matters over in his mind and he contemplated these things that he was about to go through. Now we noticed in the last message the oppression of sorrow. 
And I wish that we had time in that last message where we could have just put it all together and preached the whole passage at one time because it's really kind of hard to get back into the flow of what was happening and just uh, try, trying to do a short review. And this is, you know, this is why I really thank the Lord for the ministry of people like Brian and of, of Steve and Bob and Randy over here that, that work hard to get the uh, sermons up on the website so that you can listen to them. If you miss a sermon, you're able to go to the website and download it, listen to it again, stream it, or whatever you want to do. If you're disposed to do that, you can. And that's really a great help because I'm telling you right now, the first part of this message was so important and something that you really need to hear. But in any case, uh, this was a very difficult place for the Lord. The Garden of Gethsemane was so difficult and it stems from an an entire life of oppression that Jesus Christ lived. We never read about laughter in Jesus' life. We never see him except in moments of intense seriousness. At his birth, Herod tried to kill him. There is no record in the scriptures of Jesus playing in the house or running in the streets and uh, playing those games that children play. And I'm not saying that Jesus didn't do those things. I'm just telling you that the Bible doesn't spend time on things like that. The Bible gives us no description of that part of his life. But we have seen that as a child of 12 years old, that Jesus was serious. He was found in the temple, reasoning with the rabbis, and when his parents found him there, he said that he was doing his father's business. And I would submit to you that there is nothing as serious that can be done as the father's business. And that tells us that Jesus as a child knew that he was marked for death, and this was a weight that he carried on him for his entire life. And can you imagine being such a young child, 12 years old, and having that weight on your shoulders all of the time that you have been marked for death, that it's coming and it's going to be a torturous death. And from that point of 12 years old, we skip over 18 years of his life. We only have that one incident from his birth until his public ministry at 30 years old. Only that one incident is discovered to us. And perhaps what happened at 12 years old is meant to be an indication of what his life was like in that entire span. But then at the age of 30, he came to his ordination to ministry. That was his baptism. And immediately after his baptism, he entered into 40 days of acute temptation in the wilderness. And the Bible says that it was the Spirit that led him there. And that tells you that it was God's design that Jesus should be tested, tempted in the wilderness for all of those 40 days. And that Satan was used by God to, to, to test him in order to strengthen him. And he needed that test because the rest of his ministry would be full of oppression. And he had to be able to bear up under all of that for the next three years. He was constantly avoiding a premature death. Enemies sought to kill him almost every day. His cousin John the Baptist was beheaded for his preaching, and there were many that wanted to see the same thing happen to him. So his life was filled with sorrows, and when he came to this garden, his whole life was in the pressure cooker, and that pressure was mounting to the point that his humanity was about to be crushed under the strain. Then there was also the depression of separation, and I use that word cautiously, the word depression cautiously, because I'm not speaking of clinical depression. He was not about to lose his mind, and neither was Jesus ever without full control of his faculties, his thinking. 
Well, that's just another way. The word is just another way of describing how the Scriptures say he was exceeding sorrowful. That he was sorrowful beyond what we can normally endure. His grief was beyond what the mind can negotiate. Just a while ago, little Anna Jones passed away at five years old. We've been praying for Anna for many months. And I have to confess to you, I I, I really don't know what that grief was like for her parents. The anguish of losing a child like that, a sweet child, five years old, that had to be just truly terrifying. And the only comfort that we can take from that is to know that Jesus experienced far greater. That his mental anguish was too great for us to describe It was more than what a parent could feel in losing a child. And the comfort comes to us because we see in this that God was able to sustain his own son in the greatest grief that any person has ever experienced. And so we know that he can comfort us in our grief. And that's because we are also his sons. But this is Jesus in his humanity weighed down. His his mind was being crushed. The trials of affliction were depressing to him. There there was that, that awful loneliness of being away from his home. And it's interesting that these words in Scripture, exceeding sorrowful, are derived from a Greek word that does mean to be away from home. And who's not depressed being away from home? Who wants to be in a place where you don't have any respect? What Jesus experienced all through eternity was the angels of heaven giving him praises and giving all reverence. And so how out of place would you feel to be where no one cares anything at all about you? There was the depression of the separation from his father. And that separation only grew wider until fellowship was completely broken. He would be rejected by his father... While he was bearing our sins on the cross, there was the ultimate separation. And he had that cross to look forward to and that separation on his mind every day. Now, if he was to become sin for us, then the Father could have nothing to do with him. There's no way that he can become sin and at the same time be the darling son of the Father. And so we thought about that. Uh, I thought about the moment that that would happen, that there was going to be a split between him and his Father. And there's no way that you're capable of understanding what that felt like to him. He was separated from his disciples. Even in these intimate moments of prayer, he couldn't be with them. He had to go off by himself because this was something that he had to do alone. And then they would separate themselves from him. In just a few minutes, the same men that said that we'll go to you with to the death, those same men deserted him. And he knew that they would because he already told them what they were going to do. And so that pressure was mounting and mounting and mounting. And it was so intense that it became unbearable. And that's where we ended the last time. And I told you that we'd not yet reached the worst that was pressing down upon him. On top of all of this, there was something else that was on his mind. And if he had not been helped in the garden, he never would have made it out alive. That olive press was squeezing the life out of him. And there was a fatal crushing blow that had to be avoided. And the question is, what is that blow? And how is that blow going to be blocked? What's going to help him push back against the pressure that's on him? Well, next we come to the expression of supplication. 
And this is his plea for help. His humanity was at the limit of the pressure that he can endure. Human life couldn't take any more added to what was, what he was going through. And so he went to the only resource that he had for help. Men could not help him. The only one who could help him was his father. I'll remind you of our study in Isaiah 42 that we had at Christmas that there was a prophecy concerning the Messiah, that God the Father said this about him, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee. And here in the garden, we see Jesus about to cash in on that promise. So he goes to the Father, and he prays. He leaves the disciples, and he prays to the Heavenly Father. And I find it interesting that many have, have said that leaving the disciples to pray is a parallel to what we read in Genesis 22, verse number 5. There it says, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I, will, and, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Abraham left his servants behind to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah. And, and actually, that place is actually visible from where Jesus prayed this prayer in the garden because Mount Moriah is just over to the west of the Mount of Olives at the Temple Mount. It could be seen from this very place. And that's where Abraham took Isaac and he told his servants to stay there while he and the child went on to worship. So Jesus was Isaac about to be taken with his father and to contemplate becoming a sacrifice. And I remind you that with this sacrifice, there is no ram that's caught in the thicket. There is no ram there that's going to take his place because now we come to the time when the real human sacrifice has to be made. There are no more animal sacrifices after this. This is the real sacrifice that's made for sin and that sacrifice was him. Now we notice also that he went beyond his disciples to a private place of prayer. And he didn't bend down to his knees, but the weight was so great that the Scripture says he fell on his face. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed. There he was, prostrate on the ground, writhing in agony as he prayed. And here the words of the psalmist come into view, that great messianic psalm of Psalm 22 Perhaps you've read this many times, but you might not have equated it to this particular moment in the garden. In Psalm 22, 6, it says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. This is Jesus writhing on the ground like a worm. And isn't it amazing that the Scriptures would give that description of him? Can you imagine the Son of God, the darling of heaven, this, this one of heaven squirming in the dirt and saying, I am a worm, I am a reproach, I am despised by the people. And did you know that sanctimonious hymn singers did not want that word worm applied to them? Isaac Watts wrote in his hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. Worm is taken directly from this psalm. Isaac Watts said that and he was theological. He was right theologically, but later generations thought that worm, worm, that, that's too strong a term, that's too degrading for us. And so they changed it to say, such an one as I. 
Or in some cases, a little bit better, it says, such a sinner as I, but nobody wants to be called a worm. But here we see it. The Savior, the King of Kings, at this point, at this point calls himself a worm, and he's writhing on the ground as a worm before the Heavenly Father. Oh, but we're too good to be called worms, aren't we? This is how Jesus views sin. Sin makes you filthy. It makes you a worm that can crawl no higher than the dirt of your depravity. Now, how badly do we need to see how God sees us, what we really are in our sinfulness? But you don't hear this anymore, do you? Preachers want to clean up the Bible. They like to use soft words. Oh, you aren't really all that bad. You're not a worm. They don't want you to feel too badly about you. But not so with God. The stark reality of our humanity and our sin is laid bare before us. If the Son of God could call himself a worm as he bore our sins, then what does that make you and me? You starting to get the picture of what he went through? This is the Son of God. This is the one who's never been touched by sin. And soon the disgusting vileness of the sewer of our sins was going to be dumped on him. And that's just one more thing that's added to the crushing weight of his life. So what is this? What is this greatest weight? What's the final weight that has to be lifted or else he couldn't have made it out of the garden alive? Well, the scriptures tell us what it is. Three times he supplicated God about it. What is it? Well, look at it. It's the word cup. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So what's the problem? What is the most crushing weight that he's under? It's the cup. That's what this is all about. It's the cup. The cup is the greatest distress. In Luke chapter 22, it tells us that the weight was so great that he began to sweat great drops of blood. I'm not going to go into the medical explanation of all that, except to say that it is possible. It is possible for someone to be under such mental anguish that it's so great that the blood pressure rises and the smaller capillaries begin to burst. It's a condition that's called hematidrosis. The capillaries burst and the blood begins to mix in with the sweat glands and the person sweats blood. And that's how great the pressure was. And it was in the cup. It was the cup that caused that. It was so great that an angel had to come and strengthen him. And I believe that he was in danger of dying right there in the garden. Why? Because of what was in the cup. Do you understand that? It's the cup that's the problem. Without help, he's going to die because of what's in the cup. Well, you're probably wondering about that, aren't you? Well, what is, what is the cup? Tell us what the cup is. Well, it's not a literal cup. It's not a coffee mug or anything like that. Is he talking here about the cup of the cross? Is he afraid of death? The death of the cross? I don't really think so. If he was, then Jesus lacked the courage of his followers. Many martyrs have gone to their death without writhing on the ground in agony. Many of them have gone to their death with a smile on their face and rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. No, Christ wasn't afraid of the death of the cross. He wasn't even afraid of the torture that was before it. He could take all of that. Humans can take those things. We can take the thought of dying. 
And if torture and death, if that's what this is all about, then maybe we should just put our trust in those two thieves. Because they were crucified with him. They went through the same kinds of things. No, it's not the death of the cross that moved him this way, that he had so much anguish that he might have died. So do you still wonder what about that cup? We haven't yet reached a conclusion about it, have we? Well, I think that the thing that grieved him in his humanity beyond the ability to bear it without divine help was judgment. In the cup is God's judgment. It's God's hatred of sin. And you have no means of measuring how extreme that hatred is. God is supremely holy. God and sin cannot coexist. And God and sin do not occupy the same space. Now think on that for just a minute. Christ was about to become sin, and here we have humanity and deity and sin about to occupy the same space. About right now, you can start to think cosmic explosion. This is nuclear, folks. This is the real Big Bang right here. Christ is about to become sin, and all the wrath of God is about to be hurled against him. All of it's going to be flung on him. And let me remind you that he's not just a man that's hanging on the cross. He was God. He was divine. And he can suffer that, suffer as an infinite God. He can take infinite punishment. Don't try to calculate that. Your mind will explode if you think about things like this. You just can't reconcile it. There's no way that your mind can handle the infinite wisdom of God. And if he was less than fully God, as Mormons teach, then no sin could have been put upon him. No sin can be atoned. Sin is against an infinite God, and only an infinite God can bear the punishment of it. So all God's wrath against sin, all of it can be rolled together, and all of that can be hurled at Jesus. You can't measure that infinite suffering, and that's what Jesus faced. And here's the thing, as a man only, could he have faced that? No, he couldn't have. You can take death because all of us die. You can take that jolt because one jolt and it's over. But let me reverently say this. You need to get in to Jesus' head for just a minute. The death of man, he can endure. But Jesus stretched himself onto the ground, on the ground before the Father, and he knew that he had to take what humans can't stand. Trillions of the sins of billions of believers are going to be poured out on that body, and he will live long enough to suffer it all. And not only is there the physical suffering, but there's the spiritual suffering, the mental suffering, all of this combined together. That's what Jesus went through. And he thought about this. Here he is, the singular object of God's wrath. Sin and God are about to meet in the same space. Now forget about how bad that hell is. Nobody in hell can suffer any more than the sins that they have committed. Hell is a horrible place, but it never sees the intensity of what happened at the cross. Jesus suffered more than hell. And I say that because it may be possible for you to measure the suffering of hell in one point of time. Maybe that's possible. But what you can't do is you cannot measure the infinite suffering of eternity, and that's what Jesus was on the cross. And so here he is writhing on the ground with all of this weight on him, and no wonder there's great sweat drops of blood. No wonder he needs an angel to strengthen him. But look at this. Jesus is a stone's throw away, writhing like a worm on the ground in agony. 
and the disciples are sleeping. He went back and he found them sleeping. And he asked, could you not watch with me for just an hour? You who said that you would go to death with me, you can't stay awake and watch with me for an hour? Their response is the same as our response to the pressures that we're under. We sleep it off. We go to sleep. We go to sleep to forget about our troubles. Jesus could not sleep it off. You know, I really need another sermon to deal with disciples asleep. There's a whole lot that we miss and a whole lot that we could help if we weren't clutching our blankies with our thumbs stuck in our mouth sleeping. And don't we act like this all the time? Oh, there's just too much pressure on me. Too much pressure on me. You know, I, I complain about stress. I do. I, I have a stomach ulcer. And the doctor says, well, I think most likely that's caused by stress. A few weeks ago, I had an ulcer in my mouth. And the doctor says, yeah, you know, those things, those are caused by stress. You know, most, most weeks I, I work about 70 hours, considering the time that it, on Sundays that I preach. And do you know what my worst fear is? My worst fear is to come unprepared into the pulpit without something substantial to say. That stresses me out. Maybe that's why I have an ulcer. Oh, there's so much whining and crying about how much we have to do and how tired we are. Sometimes it's hard to come to church and hear all the sighing that goes on about how bad we feel, how much work there is to do, so much pressure that we're under. You don't have any idea. I don't have any idea. None of us knows what Jesus went through. None of us knows the incredible pressure that was on Him. And maybe that gives you a little bit of understanding why the Bible says He's touched with the feelings of all of our infirmities. You can't touch what He went through. Well, there's a lot to be said, but I have to finish. Fourthly, is the resignation of self. Let me if I, see if I can explain to you what's going on here. Satan was in full attack mode. I mean, you really have to believe that here is Jesus fighting the greatest battle that he's ever had with Satan. Satan had never had an opportunity like this before. For 33 years, God is in the weakness of human flesh. Satan fell, and I'm not sure exactly when that was. Bible scholars have a difference of opinion as the exact time that Satan fell, but probably it's somewhere right next to the time of the creation. And in all of that time, there had never been, since that time until now, there has never been, or before this time, had there ever been a 33-year period like this. Never an opportunity for Satan like this. Now in the wilderness temptation, it never got this far. It didn't come to the point that we see the Savior with capillaries burst and sweating blood. Oh, the temptation was a great battle, but not like this one. Here, Satan pulls out all the stops because the cross will be his place of defeat. Do you remember the proto-evangelium of Genesis 3.15? There it's prophesied that Satan would bruise the heel of the Savior, only bruise his heel. He won't be Christ's downfall, his undoing. But the scriptures say that Christ would crush the head of the serpent. And I think that Satan knew that if Jesus went to the cross, he would not be able to keep him there. And if he went into the tomb, he could not keep him there. And so Satan views this as seeing his head being crushed. Satan did not want him on the cross. 
That's going to change because he has to work with it. But at first, Satan doesn't want him on the cross. And think about that for just a moment to make sure that you get the picture right because Satan did not put Jesus on the cross. God put Jesus on the cross. God wanted him there. The, Harry, uh, the fury of hell was poured out on him and hell belongs to God. Now at this point, Satan is a helpless bystander. He is about to be crushed in this cosmic explosion of the cross. Now, in the temptation, what Satan tried to do, he said, let me give you the kingdoms of the world. Take it now. Don't, you don't have to go to the cross. Take it all now. I'll help you to attain it. And the temptation is to seize that opportunity not to have to go to the cross, to seize the crown without the cross. And now Satan's greatest temptation comes in the garden where he can attack Christ in a far weaker moment than then. Now he's under such stress, such mental anguish, that maybe, just maybe, Jesus will chuck it all. Maybe he will take Satan's offer and have the kingdom right then. And I have to tell you that these kinds of thoughts are too high for us. This is beyond our spiritual ability to reason. Now I don't have any idea what Satan thought that he could gain in any of this. Because at the moment that God ceased to be God, at the moment that God is not in control of all that happens here, is the moment that the universe becomes a black hole. Do you understand why? Because God upholds it all by the word of His power. And if He's not in full authority, this world cannot exist. If God is not supreme, everything collapses. And so what does Satan have to gain? I don't know. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross, none of us would be here. None of us would, would, would be here now. If Christ does not win, if He's not in full control, then there is no universe, there is no creation, there's nothing. And your mind is not equipped to handle that. But that, be as it may, Satan attacked Him in His humanity in full force. I never said that the devil was rational. He does a lot of things that seem to be irrational. He can't win in this. But Jesus is fighting this battle against him, going through all the mental anguish. Now look at verse number 39 again. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And I have to tell you, there's a great struggle over the interpretation of that statement. Was Jesus praying to get out of the cross? Well, I think that's impossible. I think it's impossible because that would be a prayer that's out of the will of the Father. Jesus never prayed a prayer that was out of God's will. The standard interpretation is that this is a prayer from the weakness of his humanity. That Jesus wanted another way, if possible, and if possible, he would have to be, of course, thinking of some other way that's also in the will of God. I mean, he's never going to pray to go outside of God's will. Well, that poses problems for us. But it could still be true. That could still be true. We're not capable of solving all the problems that come with 100% man and 100% God in the same body. If you've got that figured out, can I make an appointment with you? Because I need you to tell me. I need to explain that to me because I don't know. We're not capable of figuring all of that out. Now, I remember my dad used to preach on this, and he favored another, another interpretation. It's not original to him, so don't think it's unorthodox. Uh, he believed, and I favor this also, that Jesus prayed to be delivered 
from premature death in the garden. Oh, this weight was so oppressing, the possibility is real that in his humanity that he would die under that pressure. The blood, sweat drops of blood, I think, are proof of that, that he might not survive. And so he prayed to be preserved in order to make the date with the cross, not to avoid it. No, if he died in the garden, all is lost. He, he prayed to be delivered from death right then and there. And if not, then we would have to say, well, that has to be the Father's will. That it would have to be the Father's will that he should die there. But we also run into problems with that interpretation. And again, these are things that are beyond human reasoning. There is a collision here between human reasoning and the divine mind. So we're really no closer to understanding this well. This, this fight, this fight over the theology of the thing, we're not going to roll in the dirt on this one. We're not going to fight, not me and you, on this one. All I know is this. That Jesus fully resigned self. That whatever human, human impulses there might have been, they were all fully surrendered to the Father. He trusted that the Father would always do what is right. Now notice how he relates this message to the disciples. Verse number 40. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now his answer to find the Father's will is to keep on praying. And that's what he did. He kept on praying. Three times he prayed. And when he was through, he had his answer. He didn't die in the garden. Oh, he's about to meet his destiny, signed, sealed, and delivered from the foundation of the world. And so he returned to his disciples. And in verse 45, he, we see him resigned to the betrayal. The timing is right for it. He survived by the power of the Father over human life. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Now at that moment, he's through. He's through. Praying's over. Judas and the mob have arrived. The cross was next. The judgment of God will fall on him. But now he has the strength to face Judas. He has the strength to face a mock trial. He has the strength to face Pilate's cowardice and surrendering him. He has faced... Uh, he has... The ability now to face the cruel beating, the desertion of his disciples, nails in his hands and his feet. He can face all of that. And now he is ready to face the Father's wrath. And folks, this is what I really want you to see today. That Jesus the man took all precautions to secure his own death. He did everything to get himself to the cross. He went to the ag through the agonizing life. He experienced the oppressive life. Thoughts of death are always with him. He went to the garden under extreme pressure. A mob was already assembling that would soon be there. And instead of running to hide, going to a place that Judas wouldn't know where he was, he stayed in the garden. He continued to pray, and he prayed that he would not abandon his mission. And there was time to flee. What he could have done in those hours that he spent praying, he could have headed over the hill and gone north to Galilee. He was popular there. 
He could have headed to the east and gone beyond Jordan where they wouldn't go. They wouldn't touch him there. Oh, Jesus could have escaped it if he'd wanted to do that. But he was determined to drink that bitter cup down to the last drop. And so I want to ask you, how can you think on these things and ignore what Christ did for lost sinners? How can you think that you would ever escape the judgment of God for sin when God's own Son couldn't escape when sin was placed on Him? If you go away without faith in Christ today, you don't have any idea of the predicament that you're in. You don't understand how serious this is. What Jesus went through to conquer sin in order that you might have eternal life. You don't understand how much that God hates sin. You don't have any idea how much God loves sinners that he would put his own son through a torturous life and a torturous death. And so if you walk out of here without spiritually writhing on the ground like a worm in the dirt, if you don't understand who the Almighty God is and what he thinks about sin, I'm sorry, but you're lost and you're doomed for an eternity in hell. You have to know him. Now, is that what you're doing? Is this what you're doing? Are, are, you, are you sleeping? Are you ignoring Jesus? It's time to rise. It's time to get up and come to Jesus. Now, at this point, there have been no stripes laid on him, but the mental anguish would have killed him. But he's preserved to go to the cross for this reason, so that sinners might be saved. And that means you. Don't sleep through his agony. Arise and come to Jesus, because that's the only way that his judgment will not fall on you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in just weighty matters that are on our mind. As I've spoken, we are incapable of understanding all of this. This is too high and too holy for us. The Lord, open up our hearts to the realization of how terrible that sin is, what an awful predicament that we are truly in. Help us, Lord, to see that. And then to see the remedy for it, that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for our sins. And he only says to believe that. Trust it by faith. Come to him and realize he's done everything that needs to be done to deliver us from our sins. Help us, Lord, to see that today as Christians draw us closer. And may we remove sin from our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit because we don't want to live in the very thing that put Jesus on the cross. Help us as Christians to avoid it at all cost. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace in saving our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org